You're listening to Father Kirby Longo's Homilies, powered by Mountain Catholic. Father Kirby is a priest of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Helena and pastor of Christ the King University Parish in Missoula, Montana. We've reached an interesting point in our history in which our culture has come sort of full circle from the ancient culture of the of the gospel. So interestingly, can kind of relate. And in particular, on this view that we're talking about in the gospel today, which is, and in the first reading, which is the relation of sort of riches and justice to our human experience, to our experience of good and evil, and to the character of a person. So the writer of wisdom, he asks not for riches or for worldly goods, but for wisdom. Wisdom in the Old Testament meaning sort of to know God and to know the things of God. And yet he knows that with wisdom comes riches because the wise man will not be destitute. The wise man also just knows how to do the job. So we see in the book of wisdom a particular challenge, the beginning of a challenge to a cultural understanding, but it can only go so far because they have a limited, God has not revealed to them the fullness of the gospel yet. So other, other wisdom books, if you read Ecclesiastes or if you read Job, they take this critique even further. And what are they challenging here? They're challenging the connection in people's minds between wealth and righteousness. That was a universal belief in ancient cultures, especially in the Jewish culture, that they considered stability and wealth and riches and family blessings, especially children, to be the reward of virtue and of following the law. So then punishments, the opposite side of that would be, you know, whether it's poverty or ill health or barrenness, which we see so much in the scriptures, were, were seen and perceived as punishments from God for some sin. So that's why, I mean, you all know the story of Job, or you should, if you don't know the story of Job, read it. The, the friends of Job come after all of these disasters happen in his life, and they basically talk to him for 30 straight chapters of that book and try to get him to admit the sin that he's committed that brought this disaster upon him. The whole book is, Job, what did you do that this happened to you? And Job says, I didn't do anything. And, and that's just kind of the back and forth of the whole story. It's way more beautiful than that. I didn't really give it a, a good go there. So, but beyond that even, you think of of the, uh, the barren women among the matriarchs. Almost all of them uh, were barren. And everyone around them was seeing that as a punishment of their sin in some way. Uh, and yet the Lord provides a miracle in order that they can have children and to show that it was nothing that they had done. The struggle with, with worldly things was then seen as the result of moral failure, not just some sort of worldly circumstance. Even in the time of Jesus, we see it a couple different times in the gospel. He comes upon a man who's born blind, and the disciples ask him, Lord, who committed the sin here? Was it this man, or was it his parents that caused him to be born blind? And Jesus, of course, says, neither. It's for the glory of God, and then he heals him. But this worldview makes sense in their context. In ancient Judaism, they hadn't had yet revealed 
a real idea of eternal life. They had a vague idea of Sheol, where the dead go, and you know, we're not, we're not mortal in that sense, but they didn't have this idea of heaven or of hell. And so it makes sense to believe that God has to balance the scales now. If he's a just God, he will bring justice in this life to everyone according to their deeds. And so if you believe that, then it makes sense that those who receive blessings are good, those who receive you know, struggles in this life or who face these difficulties have done something wrong. When we look around at the world, at least what seems obvious to us, God has, is not doing that. He's not doing that, at least to even our fragile standards. Uh, and so there has to be something more. You know, we see great villains who are just never punished for their crimes, and we see innocent people who suffer all the time. That's one of the great struggles of our faith. It's the problem of, the, of innocent suffering. Why is it that that's the case? The whole later Old Testament is basically challenging exactly this. Why, Lord, what are you doing here? What, what's happening? Why are you not answering our prayers? We see it in Maccabees and Job and Wisdom. It's only the idea of eternal life and the resurrection that can make sense of the evil of the world. Jesus pushes this principle to its furthest extreme in our gospel today, you know, way beyond what anyone else has ever said on this topic. And, and he actually sets a new standard, and it's one that we sort of subconsciously almost live by today. What Jesus does is, when the rich young man comes to him, and he's a good man, he's got a good heart, he wants to follow the Lord, he just, he's asking, what do I do, Lord? What is the, the furthest I could go? I follow the commandments, it doesn't seem to be enough. What do I do? And Jesus says, give away all your possessions, follow after me. And he can't do it. And so then Jesus teaches this, that what he does is he completely disconnects wealth and goods from divine blessing. That, that it's not a direct correlation that we can make at all. In fact, our possessions, our worldly goods, can often be a hindrance to us living the gospel. They, they make it more difficult at certain times because we're attached to them. We can easily let them take over our lives, and then it becomes harder to follow the Lord, not easier. And so what are we going to do about that? Oh. When he announces that, the disciples are stunned because it's a complete opposite of everything they've ever understood about the way in which the Lord blesses. So then they have questions about it. Like, well then, Lord, how do, you, how do we know that you're blessing us? How do we know when we're in good standing with the Lord, when we're within his grace? I believe that this is the only and most perfect way of actually understanding the world. And it actually brings the most clarity to the problem of evil. So why do the innocent suffer? Why does the evil man thrive, you could say? Well, the innocent suffer because we make them suffer. That's the, I mean, so we are all, in a sense, the innocent who suffer and those who oppress the innocent. All of us in our own lives. There's no clear division, and we want there to be, because it makes life easier, but there just isn't. If the Lord came right now to bring justice, perfect justice to the world, we all need to take an examination of our life 
and think about where we would stand in that judgment. It's not as easy as we might initially think. You know, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who's a, he spent 25 years in the Russian gulags. He wrote a book called Gulag Archipelago, super beautiful, influential book in the 20th century, helped to take down the Soviet Union. But he said this from his experience in the gulags. He said, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, not between classes, not between political parties either, but right through every human heart. That's true of all of us. If we look deeply, I do believe that God is going to bring justice in eternity. He's going to make sense of all of these sort of unclear and difficult things that we see in the world. He's the only one who can do it. If it's not him, then there is never going to be any justice. It's only when we begin to lose faith in that, that the evil of the world begins to overwhelm our hearts. And we think that there's no hope that that can ever happen. Because in the end, if there is no God, then there is no justice in the world. And there certainly will need be no justice at the end of time. It's all just, you know, a, a random lottery. And to a certain extent, the fact that we were born here means we won. Congratulations. But most people in the world lost in that sense. If we look at worldly goods as the blessing of God. And so what are we going to do about that? Well, the Lord says finally here, when he talks to that rich young man, that in the end it's not the things of the world that will ever bring us joy, but relationship, specifically with him, discipleship with God, following after him, but then loving our neighbor. And you see the revolution there, that it's not the goods of the world, because if it were, then happiness would be available to such a small portion of the world. It's relationship, first with God, and then in loving our neighbor. That transforms this life. That makes joy available to everyone in the world. Suddenly, discipleship, I mean, the, the, the small child in Calcutta can be a disciple of Christ. He can love his neighbor in his own way. What a beautiful reality. That's the revolution of Christianity in the world. And that's good news. Even the evil and the hardship of life becomes yet another opportunity to love. So my neighbor hates me. Someone persecutes me. There's an opportunity to love and to pray for my enemy. And so, in a sense, it's a blessing. So let's dive into that. Let's really comprehend that in our own lives and what that means for us. Um, first, in what we are to do with the blessings that we've received, because everyone here, me included, is a part of that. Those sort of struggles with worldly goods. What are we going to do with that? How are we going to be stewards of that in a way that the Lord wants us to? But then further, to get to the core of discipleship, what it means to be a disciple. And then to go and preach that to all who need it, especially the poor who need it the most. Amen.